Morning, everybody. I'm not going to leave this on, but I just wanted to show you that I have my sword and my shield. <laughs> Put this down. Well, it's good to be at Grace Bible this morning, worshiping with you. Grace Bible, my home church. I've uh, been actually officially commissioned by you to serve as part-time uh, teaching pastor at uh, Christ Life Church in Plymouth Meeting. I've been doing a lot of preaching there and some other places. I'm a longtime uh, colleague of uh, Pastor Dr. Dave Dunbar at Missio Seminary, which uh, is still my uh, full-time job, my day job. And I uh, thank you for your prayers for Missio Seminary. I know that we're on the prayer list uh, for the morning uh, pastoral prayer every once in a while, and we appreciate that. We are completely uh, virtual ourselves at Missio, conducting the uh, missional leadership training uh, all online these days, So, uh, uh, but uh, we're doing well. And uh, I know I mentioned in a message uh, a year or so ago that I was really wrestling with uh, the seminary moving from Hatfield to Philadelphia. My commute was going from uh, eight minutes to 80 minutes, but uh, now my commute's about eight seconds. So, uh, I mean, that's, <laughs> that's, uh, there have been some upsides to it, but uh, I'm ready for the pandemic to be over just like you are. Uh, I So Hosea starts with the story of Hosea and Gomer. Hosea and Gomer. There you go. Shazam. I mean, it, it, you went through the whole message without referring to that once, Dave. So, I mean, I had to, had to do it once. Shazam. I mean, <clears throat> wrong Gomer. Uh, <clears throat> Actually, his wife, Gomer, female, Gomer. And uh, it's a serious and heart-wrenching heart point for Hosea that God establishes and orchestrates and actually commands Hosea to marry Gomer in order to make this point, which serves as the Lynchpin, the launching point, and one of the themes of Hosea, God has loved his people like a loving husband loves his cherished wife who cheats on him. I've never been through this situation uh, personally. I never want to. I've had seminary students that I've worked through with who've had it happen to them. I've had situations as uh, an elder that I've worked with people that uh, have just been shocked and crushed. Generally, you're never the same when they have a beloved spouse cheat on them, whether the wife cheating on the husband or the husband cheating on the wife. There's just no pain quite like that which is the point. 
God is making. That, that you're cheating on me, my people, breaks my heart, enrages me, like if your cherished spouse cheated on you, like, like you came home one day early from work and found your sp- spouse with someone else. And God has provided for his people like a devoted father. But they've credited their prosperity to their own exceptionalism and given their devotion to things that actually rival God. Now, of course, where Dave went with this a couple of uh, weeks ago was this implicit question that he then made explicit. Any parallels with us today? Any of this sound familiar to us today? Are we a prospered, blessed people? I'm not saying that we are the equivalent of Old Testament Israel. We're the new Israel or something like that. I'm not saying it, but are there parallels? Does any of this sound familiar? We've been blessed, prospered, secured, as Christians, particularly American Christians. And has that driven us to worship? Has that driven us to service, devotion and praise of God, or something else? Because this is the message of Hosea to Israel. The judgment coming on you will be severe. Make no mistake about it, and there's graphic language that Pastor Dave has already gone through. No need to repeat the exact language. But here's the point. The judgment coming on you is going to be severe. It's going to leave a mark. You're going to know it. You're going to feel it. It's going to be severe enough to bring repentance. Now, I'm a bit of a recovering fundamentalist. I like to tell my classes at Missio Seminary that so I can move from uh, zero to uh, fire and brimstone in 0.4 seconds. Uh, So, you know, I'm ready to just dig in here with the uh, fire and brimstone and judgment and hellfire and all that. And that would be fun. But here's the real point. When God brings judgment, it is particularly when he brings judgment on his people. It is generally, virtually never, merely punitive. That is God paying back, getting his pound of flesh. Um, You've done this to me, so I'm going to do this to you. I mean, his judgments are just. His judgments are reciprocal. I mean, even have, can have a poetic irony to them. But God's character does not bring judgment just out of sadistic entertainment at getting his vengeance. He brings judgment in order to drive his people to our knees in repentance. That's the point. What's it take to bring you? What's it take to bring me to repentance? And thorough repentance such that brings thorough transformation from the heart 
So not just superficial or external gestures, but transformation of the heart. Because, God says through Hosea, I'm going to continue to pursue you. This is how you know I'm not going to give up on this. I'm not going to just leave you alone in your prosperity, security, and comfort. I'm going to continue to pursue you. You cheating ingrates, I'm going to continue to pursue you like a loving husband, the wife his heart cannot help but love, like a father who'll never give up on his kids. He's not the kind of God that just gives you a noogie and says, now, now, you know, you really shouldn't do that. I mean, at least try to use clean needles, you know. Use protection when you're going out. <laughs> he, he, no, you know, here's the ATM card if you run out of money. No. It's because he loves us like a devoted husband, his wife. It's because he loves his people like a devoted father to his children. He pursues to the point of repentance and restoration and transformation. That's why part of the grace of God that brings forgiveness also brings redemption and restoration. Well, that's Hosea. That's the backdrop. That's actually somebody else's message is that have already been preached. <laughs> so, Pastor Dave has been in Hosea, in the northern kingdom here. And he made very clear to me, Hosea's off limits, Todd. You know, you're not, so, you know, what, what am I going to do? Well, so I went south. <laughs> Meanwhile, here in the southern kingdom, at the same time, contemporary with Hosea in the north, is Isaiah in the south. And that's actually where I'd like to focus this morning. Parallel with Hosea in the north, Isaiah in the south, in the southern kingdom, in Judah, who sometimes is called the royal prophet, in part because Isaiah, unlike a lot of prophets, Isaiah actually has royal blood. He, he was part of the royal family. He and Uzziah, who we're going to look at in a moment, had the same grandfather. Joash had Amoz, that's, uh, that's Isaiah's father. Uh, Joash also had Amaziah, that's Uzziah's father. Which would make Isaiah and Uzziah then um, kinfolk. <laughs> well, they'd have the same relationship that... Uh, Seth and Tyler would. That John the Baptist and Jesus would be first cousins, I think. <clears throat> but Isaiah is familiar with the royal courts, the royal family. He's part of that orbit, part of that circle. So I want to look at this morning what happened during the time of Isaiah, of Isaiah with a king named Uzziah, his cousin. And I'm not going to read all these passages, but if you want to jot it down and look at it later, it's 2 Kings 14 and 15, but especially 2 Chronicles 26. It's where I'm going to be queuing off most of this. And here's the general summary of what we find. Overall, in general, Uzziah was a good king. 
he certainly was successful in your general standards of measurement and diagnostics of what would make a successful political ruler. Was the nation secure during his time? Did it prosper economically? It, things like, well, Uzziah passes. He, he's going to check all the boxes. Even spiritually, he, he did okay. He rebuilt the temple. He fostered uh, worship in the temple. He didn't remove all the idols. Second Chronicles mentions that. Didn't remove all the idols. But he took steps in the right direction, even in terms of... Uh, protecting religious liberties, or fostering worship of Yahweh. He oversaw a period of economic prosperity. And he reinforced, I mean, he inherited from Amaziah a broken military uh, uh, situation. I mean, that's actually recorded in 2 Chronicles 21. He rebuilt the military. 2 Chronicles 26 goes into detail that he restored the helmets, the swords, the shields. I mean, it goes into detail. He reinforced the military. I really love this part. 2 Chronicles 26, 15 says, In Jerusalem, he made machines designed by skillful men for use on the towers and in the corner defenses to shoot down arrows and hurl large stones. His fame, became, uh, his fame spread far and wide, for he was greatly helped. He was greatly blessed until he became powerful. The reign of Uzziah was characterized by military innovation, including on the walls and corners of the temple. I mean, I'd kind of like to see what those hurling large stones, shooting rapid-fire uh, machine gun arrows you know, would look like even today. I mean, he, he like established the Black Knight tank or the stealth bomber, or the reaper drone of the ancient world. He was successful. He was prosperous. He was strategic. In fact, so successful he was that the southern people, Judah, concluded, we're safe. We're safe and secure. <laughs> Somebody try to take, the, uh, take Jerusalem with, uh, with these fancy weapons. These state-of-the-art military tools that we have on our wall. I mean, unique to the world. Nobody else has that. We're the only country that has this. We are safe and secure. We are the big kahuna of the ancient world. I'm talking about Judah. 750 B.C. I'm talking about. It's what they thought. But. But. But what? <laughs> I mean, let's end right here. <laughs> but, what, what but could there be? Well, but. When he became strong, his heart became proud. You know, God hates arrogance. God hates pride. When he became strong, when he became secure, his heart became proud, such that he acted corruptly and was unfaithful to the Lord his God, culminating in what would become a famous incident 
recounted time and again ever since. Probably the thing that Uzziah, in historical hindsight, is most known for. He went into the temple and tried to take the role of the priest to offer incense. I mean, now what's wrong with that? You know, he's offering incense to Yahweh. He's got, well, that is not a role for a king to do. He's, he's not to serve as religious representative. That's ordained by God and God's ordained agents alone. And so following him into the temple was Azariah the priest with 80 valiant, <laughs> courageous stand-up men who followed him in there and said, you can't do this, Uzziah. You are presuming authority that is not yours. And Uzziah responded in rage. Don't tell me what I can do, what I can't do. I will so do it. And as he becomes enraged, leprosy breaks out on his forehead and we're told the priest ushered out because now you've got a leper in the temple. You know, leper's not even allowed in uh, among the clean people. Of, and you've got one now in the, in the temple. So they usher him out because the Lord had smitten him. And King Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death. Yeah, he himself got out of there too. He was a leper to the day of his death and lived in a separate house being a leper for he was cut off from the house of the Lord. He ended up actually, while he was still alive, having to give the reins of power to uh, his son because he was a leper. Because of his pride and arrogance and presumption and narcissism, the Lord sent down a plague of judgment that drove him out of office. That's when Isaiah starts getting visions from the Lord. Now, I want to make clear, I have not gotten a vision from the Lord. The Lord has not appeared to me in a dream. I've not heard an audible voice from Jesus, God, uh, maybe some promptings of the Spirit. Just trying to read it responsibly, theologically sensitive to the leading of the Spirit of the Lord who inspired it. But Isaiah began getting visions from the Lord. And one of the first was in the year that King Uzziah died. Now that's kind of a date demarcator. You know, he doesn't say in the year 750 B.C. That'd be tough to do if you're actually living in 750 B.C., you know. Uh, but it'd be like, be like me saying... The year before President Kennedy was assassinated, I was born. You know, it, that, that would do the trick, you know. That's a famous day in history, and that gives you a chronological marking point. So that's part of what's going on here. But in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. 
seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. In the year that King Uzziah died, we had such hope for this king. Things seemed to be going so well. He's checking off all the checkboxes of accomplishment and economic prosperity and military reinforcement. And then he messes up and now he dies. And, and our world is a mess. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. High and exalted, seated on a throne. The train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, blazing ones, shining ones. Each with six, six wings. Two they covered their faces. With two they covered their feet. With two they were flying. And they would call out to one another. It's like they're circling the throne. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. His glory extends to the whole earth. Our world seems like it's a mess. But God is on the throne. And his glory continues to extend, not just into Judah, not just through Israel, but his glory extends through the whole earth. Even now. And Isaiah sees this clarifying get your bearings as to what really is what vision and his response like pretty much everyone we see in scripture no matter how righteous good with God they are when they get a vision like this they respond this way by the way John Jesus's uh, apostle disciple got a similar vision if not the same vision <laughs> In Revelation 5, only instead of seeing an altar stoked with coals awaiting a sacrifice, he sees next to the altar a lamb that looks like it was recently slaughtered. That's Revelation 5. Isaiah gets this vision, and he says, we get very euphemistic, hoity-toity kind of language in our uh, English translations. I'm not saying it's bad. Well, it's me. I am undone. Yes, <laughs> what he says is, holy tamole, I am royally messed up. I am in serious trouble. He does not have the immediate visceral existential sense of drawn to the warm cuddle bunny of God, he recognizes immediately. I know the kind of things that have come out of my mouth. I know the kind of thoughts and aspirations and passions I have retained in my heart. And I'm not the only one. I come from a whole group of people that are not much better than me. I'm in serious trouble. At that, one of the seraphim came with a burning coal in his hand. Now, I don't know if you're anything like me, but if I'm having this vision and I have this thought of terror at 
I am in trouble because I'm so sinful. And then one of these blazing, shiny things come at to me with a hot coal in his hand. My first thought is not, oh, good. Now I've got a seraphim coming at me with a hot coal. <laughs> Everything is going to be just fine and dandy now. This seraphim, the seraph, comes to Isaiah, touches his mouth with the hot coal. Isaiah doesn't say how that felt. But he touches his mouth with a hot coal and says, Look, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin is forgiven. Just underscore here. The seraph does not fly over and say, oh, oh, don't worry, don't worry. Your sin's not a problem. You know, he doesn't really take it all that seriously. You know, you know. No, the sin is a problem. It needs rectification. It needs to be addressed. God in his grace addresses it. At which point Isaiah hears a voice saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? It's not like God is oblivious to how messed up the situation is in Judah at the time. And God is apparently in process of crafting a plan to send a prophet. Who are we going to send? And Isaiah, of course, famous passage, famous, famous missionary passage. When it was missionary week, missions week at Cairn when I was there, lo, these many decades ago, invariably, some missionary would preach on Isaiah uh, 6, uh, 6, 5, uh, or 6, 8. Who will I send? Whom will I send? Who will go for us? And Isaiah says, I'm here. I'll go. Send me. Here am I. Send me. Ah, uh, great. Let's end. Happy ending. Except for the second time today, there's a but. And the but may explain why it could have been difficult to find someone to go. <laughs> because the situation in Judah, though they're prosperous, though they're militarily strong, though they have a history of knowing Yahweh, it's a stubborn, hard-hearted people that the prophet is going to be sent to. And God says, I am going to send you. You need to know. They're not going to listen. And in fact, the design of your prophecy even, Isaiah is actually to make them more and more culpable. This actually is a people destined for judgment. I know you're saying, there's no way, Mangum, you can end there. I kind of end. Going to stop there, and I'm going to hope for a different ending. And I'll ask you this three and a half questions. 
How much of this portion of God's word is parallel to us and our time? I mean, I I will tell you, I, I can't read it. I can't read the prophets. This one, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Jeremiah. I I can't read the prophets without seeing and hearing us all over the place. And and I know not everyone uh, agrees with me on that. Uh, I actually published an article in Christianity Today, and I'm glad that they published it. But one of the editors said, uh, you know, you make, a, a, you make a compelling case that's really got me thinking. I can't say that I still, even now, agree with you. Okay. I said, well, you know, keep praying about it. <laughs> no, I didn't. I, I appreciate it. But I won't answer for you how much you see the parallel. I see it all over the place. But you ask prayerfully, and your engagement with this inspired portion of God's word and others like it. How parallel is this? And, and if your response is a, a blow through your lips scoff, <laughs> is that because it's not there? Or is that a manifestation of how hard-hearted your heart has become? It's just a question. How, how much of this parallels us today. I will tell you, there are an increasing number of people, both inside the Bible-believing church and outside, who are saying evangelical Christianity is developing more and more a reputation for selfishness, inconsiderateness, materialism, and idolatry. Is that true? You know, trusting in things that are not God, resting in our military might, our economic security, and being inconsiderate of those that are struggling economically or marginalized. Do you see the Lord? I've told you, I've not gotten a vision like Isaiah, not expecting you to, but do you see the Lord, even through the muck and mire of this, Do you see the Lord's hand at work? A couple minutes, we're going to take communion together. A a golden opportunity for a God-ordained, Jesus-ordained, Jesus-commissioned illustration, picture of the Lord, the body and blood of the Lord, which is both a reminder of the cost he paid and also a reminder of the cost he calls us to, to participate with him in the mission of God. Do you see the Lord? Or are you so distracted by the muck and mire, by the distractions that the Lord, his will, his purposes, his mission, are the furthest thing from your mind? Is the Lord calling you to repent? See, the people in Isaiah's day were too callous, too hard-hearted to repent. Is the Lord calling you to repent? And if the Lord would send his message of rebuke to you, would you have ears to hear?
Would you have eyes to see? If Isaiah 6 speaks to us in our context in a poignant way, maybe the parallel can be one of contrast from here. But unlike the people of Judah in 750 B.C., God's people in Souderton, Pennsylvania responded, we repent, we recognize, we see your holiness, we're terrified, but we see your grace, we see your love, we see your provision. And, and, and we will cease trusting in the materialism and the might and the security and the privilege and we'll seek your face. And might you be not only one that sees, repents, and benefits Might you be one who says, God, you need agents to speak courageously to a hard-hearted context, to people who find it difficult to listen? Well, I'm here. Send me. Let's pray. Father God, we know you love us. We thank you for loving us, for providing for us, for securing for us the atoning sacrifice even that underwrites forgiveness. But we recognize, Father, from your word that your love is not a tame love. And help us to respond, Father, not with entitlement, but with repentance. And with devotion not just to your securities, but to your mission. In Jesus' name, amen.